Today's SWAPA number is 68.8. That's the number of ASAP reports filed by Southwest pilots per 10,000 flights in 2019. In this episode, we're going to talk with SWAPA Safety Chair Gary Neiman and Vice Chair Matthew Kane about the programs their committee oversees and the work they're doing to mitigate risk. And they're also going to give you some advice on what to do if ATC ever gives you a number to call. Southwest 1139, Southwest Football, RC7 right, let's take off. RC7 Football, clear for takeoff, RC7 right, Southwest 1139. I'm Amy Robinson, and today I welcome my new co-host, Jim Morris, who just joined the Communications Committee. He will be sitting in for Kurt while he focuses on negotiations. And I'm Jim Morris, and here's our interview with Gary and Matt. Gary, it might surprise some that uh, safety is one of the largest committees at SWAPA. Uh, what exactly does that look like? Well, Jim, you are right. Uh, safety is actually the largest committee at SWAPA. There are a couple of large committees, but safety is the largest. We have a budget of about $1.2 million. Um, that is actually down about 15% from last year. And I'm also happy to report that for the current year right now, we're about 29% below budget thanks to COVID at this point. We don't know going forward if that's going to change. Just a lot of meetings aren't happening. Uh, travel isn't happening, although that's starting to come back. As far as the actual committee itself, you know, not only do we have a large budget, we have a lot of people. So directly, there's about 13 people, and that's broken up into subcommittees. So first one I'll start off with is ASAP. We have four members on the ASAP group, and then we have FADAP, and that's three members there. And then fatigue risk management uh, with two members and then air traffic services with one. And then investigations as well. And then the other subset to that is our GO team representatives. So in total, you know, there's about 43 members encompassing the entire safety group. One of the things you talked about was um, your expenses for the, for the budget standpoint. and. Correct me if I'm wrong, but typically they would get higher if we had an incident or an accident in, in any given year. Is that correct? So they kind of fluctuate based on that. Uh, that's correct. Okay. So while we haven't really had anything lately, that's kind of one of the reasons they would be a little bit lower as well, right? It would be. Um, there is a small proportion of money that is budgeted in for that. You know, if we do find ourselves in that situation, then we'd be going to the board for that. Okay. So any any increases would would be board approved to take care of overages or things like that, right? Correct. So, Matt, what happens on your end when a pilot needs help, calls the safety hotline? So it's it's very dependent on what the issue is. Uh, we get a lot of general safety concerns. We get uh, a lot of a lot of questions about how to file an ASAP. What should I put in an IR? Should they have to do one? And that's what we're here for. We're here to help. Get, point you in the right direction. Safety is also kind of a clearinghouse to get you pointed in the right direction for some other committees too. A lot of times I had a guy call the other day that was definitely not a safety issue, it was a pro standards issue and we got him headed in the right direction. But as far as general safety, we'll, we will um, facilitate that. And please call us if you have any questions about what to put in an, in an IR or um, when should I fill out an ASAP, we can kind of talk you through some of the, some of the specifics about that. And then the other thing we do is in, in the case of an incident or an accident, the first thing we're going to do is provide that crew with first aid. We're going to make sure that that crew is okay where they're at, and then we're going to talk them through the next steps, uh, whether that be an NTSB investigation or an investigation just with the company. We're going to walk them through what's going to happen next 
and uh, make sure they have resources available to them at every step of the way. So in the case of an exit, you said that you would send people out and, you know, make sure the crews are safe. Was, is that the go team's responsibility? Right. And when I, when I say first aid, I don't mean we're coming with bandages and, and casts. What I mean is we're, we're getting them to a point where they're not doing anything foolish, if you will. We want to make sure that the crew gets out of harm's way from anybody that might be wanting to talk to them that they don't really need to talk to at that point. We need to get them to a safe place, whether that's a hotel room, out of the airport generally, and get them away. In the case of a, of a couple of our accidents that we've had, the press was involved, and we wanted to get them to where they didn't have to make any statements to the press. And we used some creative and interesting ways to, to accomplish that. How many people are on the GO team? It's right around 30. Yeah, I mean, it's, it depends on who, it depends on really what number you want to use for that. But, but yeah, around 30 is a good estimate. So say one of our pilots is actually involved in an incident or an accident, uh, and they call the hotline. What happens next uh, for them? as far as what they can expect from the committee, what to be told, uh, what type of direction to be given, and when to expect, basically, the cavalry to arrive. Okay, so assuming that they're not injured and they've been involved in an accident, uh, the first step is to get them sequestered. Usually that's in a room in ops, and their next step really is to wait on a drug test. Um, the collectors are usually sent at that time, and that's their next step. They'll usually be with the crew, at that point, we're going to try to get a member of SWAPA there near them, whether it's ideally it's somebody on the GO team. Um, in the case of our 1380, our Philadelphia accident, we had a rep that was nearby that knew some of the procedures. He was able to get to the crew in Philadelphia, and then I actually launched from Atlanta and was there in less than three hours and was actually able to talk to the crew. And Then we started walking the crew through their next steps as far as getting them off airport property and where we were going to take them to. That also involves a lot of coordination with the company. Their go plane, we have three seats on it at this time, will launch out of Dallas. Ideally, that's going to launch within a couple hours. Generally, it doesn't work that quickly. And that's why we, as SWAPA, will, will try to alternate means to get to the, to the accident crew members. In the case of 1380, the go plane launched and everyone kind of met up in the hotel about eight hours later, and it was in a hotel that no one knew they were there. Um, it was actually in New Jersey, and we kind of went through the next steps with them from there, and those included some interviews with the NTSB. We had outside counsel for SWAPA to help them through that, and along the way, we were providing them with whatever they needed, whether it was clothes or food or, or making sure they had open lines of communication with their family. We, we walked them through all that. So, Gary, is there anything that we could refer our pilots to other than, obviously, the hotline? Um, are there any resources that they should be looking at or thinking about in terms of safety? Uh, yes, there are resources available to our crews. The first resource is on the SWAPA app. On the lower right-hand corner, it has emergency information, and in there are the phone numbers for us, but it also just has some quick bullet points of um, being prepared for what's gonna follow, it has in there not to make the statement. If you want further resources on our website, we do have a document, the Pilot's Guide to Accidents and Incidents. And it's not a long read, it's only about 16 pages, but it addresses both domestic and non-domestic. Um, so it's a resource for the pilots. I would highly recommend that guys, uh, after listening to this podcast, go pull that up on their EFB and read it. Um, there's some really good information in there. So if you find yourself in the unfortunate place um, where you're in this situation that 
you're not dealing with it at that moment. You have a little bit of a background. You kind of have an expectation of what's going to be coming. I know one of the questions that we tend to get a lot is in terms of accident reports. Um, sometimes people ask what, you know, why it takes a while or why, you know, can we explain that in any way? Can we explain why it takes a while to get an accident report? I know that there have been investigations that have taken longer periods of time and, and why is that? The short answer is the NTSB is a very small organization of our, our U.S. government. It only employs about 400 people. They use the party system. They utilize uh, subject matter experts from parties in the accident to complete the investigation. But the ultimate finishing of the accident is within the NTSB. And fortunately, our, uh, our accidents really haven't met a lot of the threshold for being in the public eye or being at the top of their, of their list, if you will. In the case of our, of our Burbank incident, it's, we're at about two and a half years on that. And a lot of that has to do with, with COVID, has to do with the fact that um, our investigator in charge, which there's not a lot of investigators in charge at the NTSB, but our investigator in charge was tasked with a lot of the MAX foreign affairs in Africa and in Indonesia. So it's definitely not on his front burner as, as far as that goes. Um, where we're at in it, though, everything has been turned into the NTSB. In fact, SWAPA has made a formal submission for some things that we think should be looked at. All the accidents, incidents that we've seen, both with SWAPA or both with Southwest and then and then in other areas, have been a little longer than that, unless they involve a celebrity or it's a very high-profile event. And luckily, there hasn't been a whole lot of those. What is the status of our ASAP program? Are there any issues with the way it's working today? The status of the ASAP program, so the way I would put that right now, if I was given a State of the Union, is that the State of the Union is good. I was um, in a con phone conversation actually yesterday with the founder of our ASAP program, um, Mike Kenningkamp. And for those of you who don't know, they started uh, in the fall of 1999 and went through the summer of 20 uh, up in D.C., to get the aviation rule making committee approved and the MOU in place. And the switch for the Southwest uh, ASAP program was turned on on September 11th of 2000. So our ASAP program is just shy of 20 years old right now. Um, but overall, ASAP is doing well. The best analogy I can give to ASAP is it's almost like a marriage. You have to work at it. Um, there always certainly are some challenges, uh, but overall the program is functioning uh, pretty well right now. Everyone inside of the ERC is getting along. It's a, mar it's a marriage with two wives. And that's a very good way to put it. So the um, ERC committee is comprised of three parties. We have the FAA, a company representative, and a SWAPA representative. And one of the main things with ASAP is that in order for it to work, there has to be a consensus amongst those three individuals uh, inside of the ASAP. And that's for you know the minor things all the way up to you know we occasionally see some significant events inside of ASAP, but the program overall is working really well. But like I said, there are, there are occasionally some challenges arise, and so far we've been able to work work through that. Just like Matt said, um, same way with marriage. Sometimes you have some challenges, you work at it, and at the end of the day, you come out better than when you started. Explain the difference between ASAP and FADAP, because I don't think our membership necessarily understands fully what the differences are. Are they separate programs? Is it the same program? Do you get kind of lumped into one? How does how does it work? Okay, well, they, they're totally separate programs. Occasionally, there will be some crosstalk between where ASAP will utilize some FADAP numbers, 
but that's not to prove or disprove. It's just to get some more clarity on the event. But let's start with what FADAP is and what it isn't. So FADAP is data coming from the aircraft itself. Uh, we get it either wirelessly from the MAXs or through a data card on the NGs. It gets downloaded to a server. We have analysts that look for events or markers, if you will, for things that need to be looked at. When they see those, they're, they're de-identified. They'll pass them off to one of our FEDAP members who is a SWAPA safety committee member. They maintain an office within Southwest, but it is a kind of a sealed off office that they're in there and they're able to utilize that data. They then make a determination of whether or not it meets a threshold and that threshold moves as to whether a crew member needs to be called and talked to about whatever, whatever may have happened with the aircraft. That's where we get into a lot of guys who are like, well, if I meet if I do this, this, and this, I won't get a call from FEDAP. Well, it's really kind of not true. It's, it's more the totality of, of the approach or, you know, what we're looking at it as an anomaly. If we see one guy do something really squarely, we're probably going to call on that. If we see 100 guys do the same thing and we know why that occurred or we have a pretty good idea why that occurred, we may not be calling every crew that does that. Um, but what FEDAP is not is it's not a direct report to the company. The, our SWAPA committee member, FEDAP member, will reach out to the crew member, our members, almost always on a day off and say, hey, can you tell me about the event? Tell me about, we saw you do this, you know, tell me about that event. And at the end of that call, the FEDAP member is going to write down the data. It's going to be totally de-identified. He's going to say, the crew member said this, this, and this, and it's going to be aligned with that. And then the FEDAP gatekeeper is going to throw away that information, throw away the, the crew member's information, and he's going to forget about who he even talked to. If the crew member wants that to be the end of it, that's the end of it. For the most part, there's not any more follow-up from the FEDAP program itself. There's nothing, he's never going to get a call from a chief pilot based on a FEDAP event. You're never going to get punished based on a FEDAP event, unless obviously if you, you crash an airplane and they know about it in other ways, that's a, that's a different scenario. And then the last thing I want to talk about on FEDAP is if you have, a, have an, an approach that you say, man, I, I just really like to know where I was at on this approach. I feel like we were very poor at it, or I just would, would love to know my numbers. We offer that service as well. You can call up the FEDAP gatekeeper. Again, he is still a SWAPA committee member. He's working for you on the SWAPA side. You can say, hey, I'd like to look at this approach from last week. Can you can you look that up? There's some, it's a little harder to get it past 30 days, but but uh, if you call them, that's a service we provide. ASAP, quite a bit different. It's, hey, I think I really screwed up on this approach. Uh, we violated an altitude. We did something that we feel like is was an error. I want to tell you about why that happened. Here's some mitigating things that, that happened. Or here's, here's how we got into that situation. And that helps us build not only training, but lets us know kind of what things we can do in the future to prevent that or to help prevent that. If you are accepted into the ASAP program, that you, to maintain that certificate of protection, you've got to adhere to whatever the recommendations are. To the, the corrective action. Of the, of the corrective action of the ASAP program. And that can be anything from an email sent to you, just saying, hey, thank you for the report, all the way up to coming into Dallas and spending a little bit of time talking to some, some experts and are spending some time in the simulator, which, that's a pretty rare occurrence, but it is it is a tool available to them. And that's that's determined by the that, that the ERC, right? That's Correct. determined by the ERC, the three members yeah. inside of the ERC, and then all that information is also held inside of ASAP. There's nothing that goes into your training record. There's nothing that identifies you to the company, and that, and that's one of the beautiful things about the ASAP program, is that it makes the pilot whole, but it also makes the company whole, and that they're able to 
collect that data and possibly, and many times, make a change. You know, the, the ERC can end up doing a recommendation to the company. Um, that literally just happened yesterday um, in an ASAP event to where the ERC makes a recommendation to the company on some training issues. And I do want to do a follow-up to the FDAP as well. The three gatekeepers that we have deserve a lot of credit. We by far enjoy, I would say, the best FDAP program in the industry, bar none. And that's because they've kept that data protected and sacred. Some of our competitors have not. And so um, when somebody gets a call from the gatekeeper at another airline, um, you're not required to talk to them. Uh, we still enjoy a lot of openness um, to where the crew will talk to that gatekeeper. And we certainly want to encourage that. Um, because that's how we learn. And, and that's what, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, safety is about learning. Uh, we want to learn from an incident. We're not pointing fingers at anybody. We want to learn from it. And so the crew member's willingness and ability to be open about it and honest and forthcoming provides us a lot of tools to make corrective action. And, and, and that can end up in being the form of changing some training, changing a procedure, changing a policy down the road. But we just have to get the data. And just to be clear, you don't have to be involved in an incident or bust an altitude or have an, have an issue directly with you to fill out an ASAP report. You can also just fill out an ASAP report for a general safety concern. And there's absolutely no time limit on that. You fill three months later, if you saw something three months ago and you want to fill it out about something you saw, you can fill out an ASAP report. It's a little more effective if you can do it in a timely manner on the general safety concerns. But uh, you can absolutely fill out an ASAP for a general safety concern. And we encourage that as well. We're seeing an increase in the general safety concerns inside of ASAP, which is just, you know, part of the program maturing as well. Um, you know, it's not just, oh, I I did something wrong. I want to protect myself. It's if you see something, as Matt said, just general safety concern. And so that number is up to about 30% now of the ASAP reporting. Um, so we're happy to see that. Are we seeing more FDAP calls now that flying's returning? We're making the same amount of calls that we were making earlier in the year because now we have more flights, obviously. But we were making a lot more earlier in the year due to some data that we needed to kind of normalize. We had aircraft that were very light. We were seeing approach speeds that we normally don't see in anything other than aircraft deliveries or ferry flights. So we had speeds that were very low in approach, but rightfully so. That was because of the, the low gross weights. And then we had also some, some turbulence numbers that were a bit askew just because of the aircraft being so light. So we wanted to call on the crew members just to get a good grip on how our data was based on the light aircraft involved with the, the COVID-19. What do they do with the, with the data from FIDAP? So the data from FIDAP and ASAP are both utilized in our training curriculum and in our general safety concerns. We utilize those and it's all de-identified and usually put in an aggregate level to tailor our training and tailor anything we may have as far as a gate that may be screwed up or um, taxi lines that need to be painted or an approach that doesn't meet the safety threshold and requirements that we like to maintain at Southwest Airlines. Right, and I'll add a little bit to that as well. So that's all fed into what's called the DIG, which is a data integration group, and that's done on a quarterly basis. Um, and then after that dig is over, about two weeks later, they have what's called a post-dig meeting to where they take, because it's a massive amount of data that's collected and presented, it gets drilled down into a much smaller group, which is 
uh, more specifically people from the training center. But to Matt's point, all that stuff, both FADAP, ASAP, and there's other programs as well, FSAP, the uh, line audit program, all that stuff gets fed into this data group and which ultimately gets filtered into our curriculum. Guys, we know that fatigue is a factor in a lot of those uh, ASAP reports that you guys get to look at. And it seems like we're heading into a really challenging summer schedule with not enough pilots. So what's the status of our fatigue program and what advice do you give pilots when they when they call you? So Jim, I, I believe you're right. It does appear that we are heading into another challenging summer, which is good news uh, for us You know, overall. Uh, flights are going up, but as you said, we don't have enough pilots after the uh, VSP program. And um, the fatigue program is also in a really good place right now. And my advice is that the fatigue policy is there to be used. Um, we've all been there to where we're all very mission-oriented individuals. You know, we don't want to call on fatigue because we think we're going to be putting, you know, our fellow crew members in a bad position. We don't want to inconvenience any passengers. But the policy is there for you to use. One of the other things that we're unique in that we can do that our other industry partners can't is that we can also do is called a perspective fatigue call. And there's a system for that where you call the chief pilot at the NOC and they would kind of go through a checklist with you. And so, for example, if you're going to Dallas to El Paso and then on to San Diego, and you're like, you know, I'm fine to do this Dallas to El Paso leg, but I know when I get to El Paso, um, I'm, I'm just gonna, not gonna be able to continue. So at that point, the chief pilot on call would go through a call with you, um, and they would actually determine if they're gonna let you continue at that point or not. And some cases, after they do their questioning, um, they go ahead and elect to put you in fatigue at that point. Um, it's, they're just using a risk analysis tool but I would highly recommend utilizing that tool. If you even think that you're coming up on fatigue, um, then you should utilize the tools that are available to you. And we have a we have a really great safety member who is, lives, breathes, and eats fatigue concerns um, on your team. Yes, we do. So um, Scott Hutchison does a wonderful job with that. Um, and he's also um, joined by another individual from SRC. And so every month they go through all the fatigue calls, they go through all the reports, and they give recommendations to the company um, every month and the company participates in that. But yeah, Scott, and Scott does a great job. And the last thing on that, just remember, you don't have to call in fatigue to write a fatigue report. All right, so is there anything on safety-wise that, that you guys have issues with, you would like to see corrected, something in the future that you would like to be different? Well, one of the issues that has come up because of some accidents in the recent past is the government asked for cameras in the cockpit. They're using the word image recorders. They're asking for not full-time video, but more of a four, eight frames per second image recording, if you will. There is some precedence in other industries for that, especially in the rail industry. And some other countries are, are pressing for that. You know, SWAPA's position is to object to that. Uh, there's a lot of concerns involved with that. And there's some pretty decent subject matter experts out there that said that there would have to be quite a few recorders in the cockpit to really do anything useful with it. You, you would really need to know a lot more than just one camera in the back of the cockpit. So at the moment, we're, we're opposed to it, but we definitely are staying abreast of developments. 
Last question. Uh, if I'm out flying and an air traffic controller gives me a number to call, uh, what should I do? So if air traffic control gives you a number to call, we ask that you go ahead and call SWAP of Safety. We want to kind of talk you through uh, why you were given that number to call. And just to kind of give a little bit of background and history to it, uh, it's what's known as a Brasher warning. And it dates back to 1985 when Captain Jack Brasher was not given a warning and a pilot deviation. And so when he went back to the NTSB in his hearing, he contended that that should not have happened simply because he wasn't warned about it. So the regulations were changed so that if the air traffic control believes that you had a pilot deviation, they have to give you that warning. And we just want to talk you through that first before uh, you call the number. So call SWAPA first. Thank you to Gary and Matt for taking the time to talk with us today. And thank you for listening. Please remember that we want to hear from you. If you have any feedback, please drop us a line at com at swapa.org. And if you need to reach the safety committee, you'll find all of their contact information at the new SWAPA website. And finally, today's bonus number is 80. That's the number of FIDAP calls made per month. As Matt mentioned, the FIDAP program is designed to collect data that is ultimately used not only to ensure safety, but also to help influence the training programs that you attend yearly. So your input is extremely valuable. It is this data that helps keep our airline as one of the safest in the industry and our safety programs at the forefront of risk management. That's 424 last week, it's Charles on a Gulf Union, mile and a half final. We can calm them, we 26 left, so land. We're land, 26 left, South 424.